0: All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io, but for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stablecoins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with LukaTax, the crypto tax software I've trusted since 2014. LukaTax supports unlimited transaction uploads from major exchanges and wallets and offers live chat support if you get stuck. They help optimize your capital gains or losses reporting so you can max out this year's tax refund. LukaTax is offering a special discount for Masari's unqualified opinions listeners. Just use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of just $19.95. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Asari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2 Bit Idiots. Got another great episode for you today with the co-founder and CEO of Orchid Labs, Stephen Waterhouse, aka Seven. We're going to maybe get into that nickname, maybe not. We can keep it a little bit mysterious. It's up to you. Um, but there's a, there's quite a bit that we want to talk about from the direct listing on Coinbase, uh, which is a little bit of an or- unorthodox move, uh, especially in the backdrop of the ICO and, and last year's IEO markets. Uh, obviously, we want to touch uh, quite a bit out on the company's decentralized or the protocol's decentralized VPN network, what that means and and how ultimately this particular uh, community will scale out over the course of the next couple of years. Uh, And then more broadly, uh, we'll we'll wrap a little bit about the general trends in the market, whether we're uh, about to go through a Web3 resurgence, a broader crypto resurgence, and what other moving uh, pieces must be built for the Web3 vision to, to really come to fruition here. Um, at a, a global scale. But uh, for starters, uh, Stephen, you know, please enlighten our audience. Uh, I've known you for a long time, but but would really just want to start with your background and, and how you even fell into crypto full time. And then we can get uh, a little bit into the weeds on Orchid in particular.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Um- yeah, I think I think you and I go back to maybe 2014 or something, or even earlier. Uh,
0: I think I think we met at a lunch in Miami at that weird conference. Oh, yeah,
1: that, yeah, that was uh, that was January 24, January 2014. Yeah, I remember that one very, very clearly. Um, trippy conference for sure. <laughs> uh, well, yes, yeah, so the, they're all quite trippy still, um, especially when there's lots of guys in suits there. That's even more trippy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. Uh, I got into crypto um, probably about a year before I met you. And Mm -hmm. um, it's like a long twisted path of uh, doing lots of different kinds of entrepreneurial things um, since I moved to the States in 97. Um, So I got a technical background, a PhD in speech recognition and machine learning. And um, the first time I got into anything decentralized or distributed was uh, I was at Sun. uh, after They acquired one of the startups I was running engineering for. And uh, we started building peer to peer frameworks as a system called JAXA. And then uh, I started working on and launched a distributed storage system. So the idea was maybe we would want to store data forever or a long time. And that was kind of a weird idea at the time, but it turned out that distributed storage systems uh, worked really well for that. Um, uh, After a number of different careers later, um, I ended up at Fortress, uh, where I was um, part of an intellectual property fund. And decided I didn't really want to do IP any longer. I'd been fighting patent trolls for many years and then decided that I kind of want to do something else. So Pete Brigger said, uh, why don't you come back in a few weeks with another idea? And I came back with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I was actually chatting to a good friend of mine, Sean O'Connor, about um, different things that were interesting in the world. And um, and Pete said, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we've been looking at that. grass has been looking at that. And I'm friends with Wences. And so... Uh, we started this little side project um, and the side project got a little bit bigger. And then in May, uh, we brought in Dan Moorhead. Um, the initial idea was we are just going to do this all at uh, Fortress. And I think, um, I think the book Digital Gold um, by Nathan uh, uh, talks about this, quite a bit this history. Um, but in uh, September or October of that year, um, Bitcoin was kind of going crazy and uh, Fortress decided to kind of cut us loose or said, uh, you know, we'll back you guys, but we don't want to do it in-house. And um, so Dan and I took off and uh, started Pantera, and uh, three and a half years later, um, I decided that being a VC was fun, but for so many years, I just thought that um, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur and you do something significant, you take your company public or something, and then you become a VC, and that's like the, the end goal. That's the echelon of, of success. And I found it a very different thing um, than I expected and um, really missed uh, the startup world. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, it was, it was nice to leave and then think through what I wanted to do next. And that eventually to took um, a few months later.
0: And, and talk a little bit about the, uh, the design of the system, you know, what, what the overarching goals of, of this network are, uh, and how a project that was born really in the euphoria and, and, and heights of, of mania. in in mid-late 2017, um, what steps you've taken to just bear down, focus on actually delivering this network and and ultimately where you see things going now that the token is trading and and you are at mainnet and attempting to scale the network?
1: I think appearances can be deceptive. So so the idea actually uh, started in um, kind of late 2016, early 2017. and after Pantera, I'd taken a little bit of a hiatus from, from crypto, um, um, but an interesting thing happened to me. So first of all, I was looking a lot at privacy and security and uh, looking at ideas around something like a kind of open AI for for security technology. Um, you know, what if you get the smartest people in a room and get it funded somehow and just really bear down on fundamental ideas of how you could rebuild uh, systems today that, that had security as, and privacy as the default rather than an option that you add in later. Because uh, if you look at back at the web, we, we, we did it first and then we added in security later. And right now we're all concerned about privacy and so we're kind of like layering it on, but it doesn't always work. Um, and then I got phone ported. So like a number of uh, people in the crypto space, um, someone tried to get my phone and take my keys and so on. Um, recovered fairly rapidly from that. Um, cause I have sort of a bit of a hacker background too. So I was, I was able to Psy- psycho-
0: psychologically or were your keys actually comprom- compromised?
1: No, they, they weren't. Um, uh, a lot of other things were, and then I managed to kick people out of my stuff. So I was able to get control. Uh, the longest thing, actually. To bit, the longest like
0: email and Twitter, yeah, email, bank accounts,
1: all things. So the oh, longest yeah. thing was, um, yeah, the longest thing was getting my phone number back um, from Verizon, because after Verizon was able to just say, oh, sure, we will just give you a phone on somewhere else, getting it back, of course, I had to prove that I was me. I was like, well, why didn't you have me prove that I was me in the first place? Um, <laughs> so, so, so this is an ongoing thing that many people have, have, in our industry have faced. And uh, for all you phone porters out there, I, I do have much better security now. Uh, it's something that I, I was asked the other day, what's your one thing to recommend to somebody who's coming into the industry? I'm just like, protect your stuff. Because before yeah. you know it, you're going to want to. Um, so in uh, early 2017, after that phone porting incident at the end of 2016, I was just really motivated to do something. Like I just needed, I was like some kind of like sign for the universe. You better get off here, um, off the seat and just get, get on with us. Um, mm-hmm. So I started ideating on different ideas um, and the VPN space just seemed really strange and messed up to me. Um, it, VPNs have this thing even today, um, especially today where People ask me all the time which VPN they should use. Of course, now I say Orchid. but in the past, I would say, well, I know the guy's here, and I don't know the guy's here, and I've heard stories about these guys, and these guys have heard about. And it's a bit like how search engines were before Google. It's very much like people ask me all the time, like, what search engines do you using? And then finally we had Google, and like, I just use Google. And, um, and then also I started learning about how uh, lots of VPN companies um, sell aggregated data. Um, they say they don't log, but it turns out they do. So... There's all these kind of strange things, um, and having turned, having had a bit of a hiatus from the from the crypto space, uh, I started talking to Olaf, um, and he really turned me on to what was happening with Gollum, which was the mm-hmm. one of the first uh, first uh, kind of ERC twenty um, enabled systems, and. I was like, oh, Donald they're doing f- it.
0: F- focused focused on distributed bandwidth too, so different, but general. Mm-hmm. Dis- yeah, they, so
1: they're they're doing distributed computing with, for for rendering uh, or the mm-hmm. the still around. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I was like, well, what if we did the same thing for for bandwidth? it's for VPNs. And then once you start going down that path of reasoning, you realize that well, what you really want to do is also enable multi-hop and layering and all these different things, and maybe you want to mm-hmm. think through how all the attack vectors would work and um, so I was fortunate enough to meet up with uh, uh, my co-founders, um, um, especially like Brian Fox, Jay Freeman, who built out Sadia, who's now our CTO, um, and then Gustav Simonson, who built out the core security framework for Ethereum. So with that core team, um, we were off to the races, I guess, uh, and got our initial support in uh, June of 2017. Um, but like a lot of things, I, I'm always, I, always, I always kind of seemed to underestimate the hype. and I was, I was really taken by surprise by how fast the ICO space um, boomed. And uh, and then I wasn't so surprised by how fast it, it collapsed. But um, it's um, the way we've stayed focused is to really focus on our mission. Our mission is to create a more open and private internet. Um, and there's a lot of layers to that uh, mm-hmm. kind of mission. Um, we're not just uh, focused on this one like we're, we we call ourselves a company that has a project, so we're not just a project. Um, mm-hmm. Orchid allows the company. The Orchid Network is our is the project we're doing now, and we we may do other ones in the future. Um, but our um, our general mission is to develop privacy tools um, that really enable a more open and private internet. And so we will consider adding other things to the the application that uh, that to enable that. And I think really that core mission and thinking process um, has has kept us I guess sort of on the level heads when everything else has been getting a little strange
0: that mission seems almost intentionally uh, oxymoronic uh, in terms of you wouldn't usually put those two words in the same statement more open and private um, how do you how do you think about privacy in terms of actually adding to the openness and, and usability of the broader internet because this is obviously a, a pretty wide topic of conversation and, and you'll hear Zuko talk about similar concepts when he thinks about privacy by defaults, ultimately being the end state that we need for a truly interoperable financial system, otherwise major financial entities can't transact because yeah. you, you showcase private data, um, private client data. How, how do you kind of reconcile those two differences, especially given the connotations that um, VPNs may have, at least in Western circles, uh, as more you know hackerish and uh, and, and dark markets affiliated mm-hmm. versus um, what you might expect in eastern markets where you know VPNs are just kind of the, the in the course of doing business if you're in China and you're trying to figure out how to access Western information
1: sources it, it's, it's clearly um, nuanced right I think that when, when you actually look at the use cases for, for VPNs as uh, just that category for a second Um there's a very small number of people who uh, want to break some kind of regulated um, regime. Whether that regulated regime is doing things in the West that we would consider nefarious, or doing things in other parts of the world that they would consider nefarious, but we would consider reasonable. Um, like accessing the internet in parts of the world that we consider as normal. In many parts of the world, they're like, that's not okay. You can't look at those kind of sites because they are anti-government, they are revolutionary, and so on. So we decide they're not okay. So it does get into some very nuanced philosophy of what does freedom of speech mean. Um and one of my favorite countries outside of, of the ones I live in um, is Germany, where extreme right wing speech is banned, right? So mm-hmm. to Germany's ironically the sort of one of the last bastions of uh, social democratic principles. And yet a, a thing that we all in this country believe is, is or many of us believe, is, is the right way to go. And it's our constitution, it's the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression, political opinion. In Germany, there's a specific category that, like, you can't talk about this for historical reasons. So um, I i guess I fundamentally don't believe that, um, in sort of in, in combination with Zucker and many people, that because we're creating a technology that might improve openness and privacy, mm-hmm. that that necessarily incites people to be more certain, more nefarious. Um, and in combination, with, we're doing quite a bit of work with uh, Alex Gladstein and Human Rights um, Foundation and they run the Freedom Forum. And I've been fortunate enough to meet with real activists recently, people who um, were part of uh, a number of um, uprisings, including in Hong Kong, people who are leaders in this. And we talked to them and they're saying, yes, we really need these tools in order to do things and be able to communicate and um, stop being oppressed. And I think, When we're sort of sitting in this luxury in the West where we almost don't understand why we would need a VPN, we just automatically think that, oh, well, you must be sketchy if you want to use that kind of thing. But Orchid's uh, vision is is much larger than um, California or San Francisco, and it's definitely much larger than the United States. We we think of this stuff as trying to access, for example, Indonesia, the Indonesian Indonesian market where 43% of people are using VPNs on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are, there are some funny examples here if you, if you dig into it. So we're all familiar with the Great Firewall of China and other countries, but there's also the Great Firewall of the high school. Um, so in high schools today in California, um, the, uh, the governments, which is the high school, uh, people running high school, put in firewalls which stop the students who are using the Wi-Fi from accessing the <laughs> revolutionary tools of Snapchat and Instagram. And so one of the fastest growing segments of the VPN space right now is, um, in kids who, you know, high school kids who want to just, they want to be free. They want to have a good time. They want to like talk to their friends on Snapchat and Instagram. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I I can't tell you whether that's right or wrong. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting counterpoint to this idea that people want to do really sketchy things all the time with uh, private information, private communication.
0: Uh, I want to talk about uh, ORCID network and, and the role of the token and, and all that. And, and we will get to that. But first uh, I want to drill down on, on the VPN market dynamics in general. We, we kind of talked about some of the use cases you alluded to. the I don't want to, not necessarily shady, but just um, difficult to navigate uh, dynamic of just finding the right VPN provider because there is no household name right so so can can you help just break down for people the the state of internet browsing in general and and internet traffic and how much actually flows through vpns and and what some of the demographics are um and what the growth rate is of vpns as a percentage of of you know total browsing activity um
1: yeah sure so it's it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange statistic to actually analyze because the, the name VPN is also encompasses um, a different thing, which is if you're a company that has a firewall, as you should, mm-hmm. um, the ability to tunnel through that firewall to access your internal drives or internal information um, is also done using a VPN. It just means virtual private network. So mm-hmm. that's different to what we think of in the consumer space, which is a VPN, is a um, somebody just literally running a server that you connect to using a client. Um, And because that server um, may be either in a different geography where it has different kinds of access. So if you're in uh, a part of the world that's being um, repressed by a, a firewall and you're able to connect to that particular IP address and connect to it because the firewall is not filtering all IP addresses, it's filtering Google and Facebook and all these kind of things, then you're able to so it's called geo geoporting. So then you're able to access all the content that that server could access from where it is. So that's that's sort of like the, the idea of getting access. Um, in terms of the privacy angle, uh, because that connection is encrypted and because it's going through a particular channel, um, it's, it's it becomes more challenging for the firewall to be or other people to be to be monitoring your data. So there's kind of these two two use cases. Um, the, the growth statistics are um, relatively significant. Um, it's very um, broken out into different regions. And so, saying one of the largest regions in the world is Indonesia, that's about 43%. Um, wow. In the United States. Um, why, why, why is it so high in Indonesia? Uh, So there's considerable censorship on what people are allowed to look at, but there's also a lot of concern there about uh, kind of government censorship and surveillance of even Mm -hmm. businesses. And so people in the business world, because Indonesia is a very fragmented country, um, they're concerned about what what the government's looking at and and how much it's it's observing and controlling them. So so that's one area. Um, And if you look at something like the Freedom on the Net report, um, the Mm -hmm. website talks about different... Um, uh, levels of, of freedom in different places, you'll find pretty quickly that the countries that have the most oppressive, oppressive regimes in terms of information access and surveillance and censorship are the ones where you as uh, naturally will we'll see the, the highest use of VPNs. Uh, in the United States, the estimates vary between something like 5 and 15% or maybe 20%. But again, that's broken out by demographic. And so you'll tend to see... Uh, The younger age group are much more aware of what a VPN is, first of all, um, and have much higher usages of it. And obviously, people who are more international and global travelers tend to think about these things a lot more and are using it. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And and primarily speaking, are people defaulting to VPNs uh, more, or is this something that is... Really, it just comes into place if you're accessing Wi-Fi in, in a, a public environment or you're browsing from your phone. Um, is it, how, how do you kind of split things out both by device and then kind of user activity? Because I'd imagine that many people um, are not necessarily just default VPN users. They might be VPN users when they're mobile versus when they're at home.
1: That's a good question. Um, I don't want to get all weird here, but it sort of depends on your attack vector, on your adversary, is how you think about these things, and also how aware you are of what's really happening. And to a certain extent, what are you doing? Um, And so uh, I very strongly recommend, and we've just recently sponsored all the ETH global events for the Wi-Fi. So we very strongly recommend that people use VPNs on public Wi-Fis because it is just literally a completely insecure channel. Um, and I will typically uh, tether my phone to my computer versus using a public Wi-Fi. Um, uh, interestingly, I think the Google Five Pixel phones—I don't know if they still do it—but when I was in traveling internationally, about the you can set it up so that when um, the phone accesses access to the Wi-Fi hotspot, it automatically fires up a VPN. Um, and that's where I'd like to see this this stuff going—is a little bit more like you don't have to think about it; it just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely the direction we're going on with our user interfaces and, and system configuration. Um, but yeah, I'd say that awareness is definitely increasing. And what we notice is that um, whenever something happens, whether there's a clamp down or, or a, a warning about surveillance in whatever country it is, uh, VPN downloads and searches to VPN, all these things tend to skyrocket. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly a number of people we've talked to in the space who've been in it for longer commercially than we have um, have has observed, observed these behaviors. And we've certainly had inbound from a number of parts of the world uh, recently um, where people are saying, hey, the, the government's starting to crack down on us. Can you please help us understand how to use this? Um, so we've also had like specific personal experience um, that, that, that that is a real issue still. It's not just something people write about.
0: So one, of, one of the things, so first of all, I've been excited about this as a use case for for crypto for quite some time, because it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And if you think about the alternatives today, they're all third parties. So the first thing that pops to mind is who do you trust out of the trusted third parties that are ostensibly trying to help you navigate this uh, the, the web without being surveilled. Um, or to establish some type of reliable private connection that doesn't have a backdoor with the CIA or or whatever the kind of regional power is that that might um, have some back channel to to the the vendor in question. Um, it seems that you number one you'd be able to create more of a shelling point around a, a decentralized network. Um, so using Bitcoin as one digital gold versus a regional digital gold equivalent or a fiat yeah. currency equivalent in a, in a given region. Uh, I think there, there's quite a lot of power to that because you can prove that the network is not corrupted, the technology is not corrupted. Um, there's also uh, just an in, 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 in element that uh, there tends to be, I think, strong uh, infrastructure overlap with rolling this out. If you can envision a future where your phone has a MetaMask uh, or, or Web3 wallets, your browser, you know, if you're using Brave, has a digital currency wallet where you might be able to stream payments to a VPN network uh, like Orchid uh, rather than to just a vendor that's ultimately going to use a pay- payment processor like BitPay or, or you know, Coinbase or, or whomever. Um, I don't know if all those pieces are in place yet, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear if I'm just totally off base, if I'm missing a couple steps there, or if, you know, what I just said sounds good in theory, but it's still, you know, many years away. Where, where are we in the development of the stack to actually get it uh, from a consumer that's going to be able to use these services relatively seamlessly because all the other building blocks are in place and it might take very minimal user education to get them to be using this default private network.
1: Um, so, are you asking specifically where, where is ORCID or what do I think the industry as a whole? Well,
0: well, well obviously Orkut is still very early. So, I'm, I'm I'm thinking more about the other building blocks. Right? Are are there other yeah. dependencies that you're waiting on for for this um, viable at scale or? Um, do you do you think that the network or the broader Web three stack is in a place yeah. where, as Orca develops, um, so be able to scale with the
1: user base? Yeah, I, I'll give you a, um, a very personal um, response to that one, which is that um, over the over the last few months of last year, um, as we as we were launching, um, I was personally very involved in uh, not not the technology development, but the sort of implementation of how it rolled out into um, all the different Ethereum connection points. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing that really uh, made me stop and, and think through, because we were very committed to Ethereum, obviously, and, and that's what we decided to launch on, it was just how widespread and how integrated and how easy it was to integrate. And many of the partnerships we're discussing now with other wallets or other things, um, there's actually a very strong standardization of uh, the stack. And... Also just going to DevCon last year and just seeing how many people were there and, and the, the strong support for all the different kinds of tools there. Um, and yeah, sure, we, we, we like to argue about whether this layer one design or some other layer one design is going to be the right one, but I kind of think that's somewhat irrelevant, that they're all going to kind of figure it out and be interoperable. Um, and I think that I'm certainly excited about stuff like Polkadot, which can, can improve interoperability across chains. But I'd I say we're actually very close to... Uh, some developer just sitting down and throwing a bunch of things together and, and hopefully using our network also um, to build really uh, compelling user experiences. Um, I think Apple recently had a, a post about Audios, I think it was, which is mm-hmm. uh, a, a new app. Um, it's not clear to me given their stance though. They actually realized it was a uh, Ethereum based app, but um, I, uh, I, I think that's that we're getting to that point now. Um, and after, uh after we launched, I made this joke that uh, now we have normal startup problems. Um, you know, Product market fits and user growth and all these kind of things and marketing. And it's kind of an exciting place to be, um, to actually think to yourself, okay, we've got something, we're going to make it better, easier to use. But it's also like, it's just like the real work of how do you how do you build this thing and get people to use it. But I think we're getting there pretty close. And definitely a lot better than we were a few years ago. Um,
0: well well let's uh, we've da- kind of danced around the periphery uh, up to this point in the conversation talking about the actual end market the the problem solution and, and and one of the reasons that I wanted to frame the conversation that way is this seems like one of the more intuitive problems that crypto could solve if the network works as advertised um, so let's talk about how your network functions and where you are right now in its development cycle because you are now in the product market fit uh, stage and, and kind of iterative stage of actually onboarding users to this two-sided market. Um, but I'd love to know what the roadmap looks like, not just for for onboarding those partners and, and actually users, but where the token fits into all this, because that can be a very powerful tool to attract users and attract you know early, early entrants. Um, depending on how the actual token economics work and, and kind of what the embedded uh, incentive structures are.
1: Yeah, sure, so um, I guess just the, the very simple uh, view of how this thing works, it's um, there, are, there, is, there are no providers or providers in the network who are providing bandwidth services and they are compensated for the services using OXT, which is the the old currency, uh, ORCID token. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Orchid doesn't have anything to do with the provision of bandwidth services. Uh, there's no, we're not an intermediary in the sense at all. Um, and this is all uh, being done in combination with uh, the Ethereum network, um, of which OXT is a uh, is a a smart contract ERC20 token um, in that Um, just like many other ones that people may be familiar with um, all the way back to Gollum and uh, so clients connect to the network um, and they're looking for a secure VPN-like connection and instead of paying with a credit card they're paying with OXT and that OXT goes to uh, one of the providers who's providing that network route it may also go to another network provider or even another one um, because in Orchid, one of the unique things you can do is you can layer uh, different providers on top of each other uh, to improve your privacy. Um, there's a whole tangential area which we could talk about, which is really not crypto. It's actually It actually is crypto, but it's not like cryptocurrency, um, which is related to the, the wireline technology, the VPN that we built, um, which is a brand new approach. We're using uh, WebRTC, which is... Actually, one of the technologies we're we'll using right now to do this video call. Um, and there's a lot of improvements we've made over existing VPN connections. Uh, we're also compatible with OpenVPN VPN and other things. So, as we talked about before, the idea of what we're doing is trying to improve privacy on the internet, but uh, a, a bigger, if you step a little bit further back, um, the awkward network could also be used for other kinds of services. So you could use it in this case for bandwidth, but we're gonna be adding something soon which allows it also to be used for compute. Um, And so this isn't necessarily going up against uh, Gollum or Lightpeer and so on. It's just that sometimes you might want to do something with the VPN connection where you actually want to compute something as part of that security process. Um, And so we're adding a compute functionality there too. Um, But uh, we're going to be doing some hackathons around this as to how you could use the Orchid network for other things. Um, Where... Yeah, sure. yeah, where,
0: where does uh, OXT come into this uh, specifically? Because at first glance, someone might look at this dynamic and say, well, you know, why can't you just send Ether? Why can't you just send Bitcoin? Um, if this is just being used to settle payments between the different users and, and providers in the network. Um, why introduce this other layer of complexity, or or this OXT token? I'd imagine it has something to do with the staking uh, uh, design in in the system. Yeah, sure, um, that's a good question. How good question. how, Thank how you. particular does this work?
1: Yeah, so so we, there are actually two kinds of staking in the Orca network. Um, the first is actually done by the client itself. So every time a client connects or a client, a client application connects, it has to stake a small amount of OXT, and this is mm-hmm. um, to prevent the potential adversarial behavior that could happen for the client. But the larger amount of RXT that's staked is by a network provider, by node provider. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the way to think about this is that unlike uh, other systems like proof-of-stake, we're, we're not a proof-of-stake system, we're a proof-of-work system on it. Well, currently there is proof is proof-of-work, in the future it will be proof-of-stake, but um, we're working on the standard proof-of-work consensus algorithm. But uh, in Orchid, what the stake does is it's an advertisement of your services. So if you have a data center with tons of bandwidth and capability, you're going to want to stake a lot of OXT uh, because that's going to advertise that as a, as a better place to be able to go to. Um, if you put too much, too little down in that case, you're kind of wasting the investment in the bandwidth services that are available. If you put too much down, then you're wasting the OXT, which could have been used for something else in a DeFi scenario or putting it in the bank. Um, so, that's kind of the, the mechanism that's used there. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of broader thing which we should probably touch about maybe in another question, which is, is that as an orthogonal thing, you can construct DAOs on top of this, which then have uh, the OXT at risk, but I, I'll explain that in a minute. But yeah, the OXT is used as a staking mechanism in order to advertise services in our system. Um, and, and so it becomes,
0: uh, in, in some sense, a uh, representation of the available network bandwidth that can be used at any given time. Is that the right way to think about it?
1: Yes, and, and it's, it's, um, we think it's, it's actually a very interesting analog to what happens today, um, which is that today the way you find out of a VPN is through affiliate sites. And so people are spending money and doing marketing and building these affiliate sites. And then, unfortunately, you find out that the affiliate sites actually have deals with VPN companies, so they're not really telling the truth. Uh, we think ours is a more fair kind of uh, representation as to the economic um, reality there. Um, there's a couple more points I want to touch on that we didn't quite get to. Uh, because we're using Ethereum, there's an issue, of, as we all know about, um, if we go back to crypto CryptoKitties days, where CryptoKitties and, and those teams uh, sort of slow down the network, and even the ICO phases are where people would slow down the network through ICOs. Mm-hmm. So we thought very carefully about this. Um, one of the things we introduced is this concept of nanopayments, which people like to tell me is really micropayments, but it, we, we give it a different name because micropayments is sort of branded to mean certain things in the past. Um, so what happens is is that it's effectively a form of a payment channel, but it's it's very different to most payment channels and that it's many-to-many. Many. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea is, is that for any node provider, the currency of our network is not actually OXT. It's actually nanopayments, and the nanopayments are probabilistic. So if you're a node provider, I'm sending you payments, And only one of those payments is what you can think of as a winner. Um, And then when you get that winner, you get a large chunk that was held in the smart contract paid to you. And the idea is it's designed such that the expected value is the same as opposed to paying you a small amount every time. Um, So this is very advantageous because we can now put payments um, with packets. So when the network stream comes in, on the phone, we capture all the network stream, we reconstruct it, put in the payments. And this has some very significant advantages around different kinds of adversarial tax and so on that uh, we, we can talk about another time, but it's it's, uh, it's a very flexible system. And people always ask us, like, how are you going to scale on Ethereum? And we've, we pointed to this. It's really not been that much talked about by anybody or ourselves. We just kind of threw it in there. But short mm-hmm. story, we're able to do data networking speeds on Ethereum by using this approach.
0: Makes sense. Uh, does that, does the need for that subside if and when ETH2, you know, is fully implemented or uh, if and when you're able to leverage something like Polkadot and have your own, you know, parachain that's, that's you know, hosting this network? Or do you see this as a long-term need for this parallel payment currency to exist because of the other staking mechanisms and, and just for the, the Probabilistic
1: nano payments. Um, I, I don't envision it just necessarily uh, moving away from that anytime soon, um, mm-hmm. because it, people talk about uh, you know certain things not being fast enough, and then if we do each 2.0, then we'll get up to much faster speeds. But data networking speeds are really fast, especially in comparison to what we what we think of. They're way faster than payment networks, faster than Visa and so on. It's it's the stuff that you and I are talking about right now. And with our approach, we're able to do that. We're able to do payments at a, at a data networking speed. So it's almost like orders of magnitude higher than, than anything we think about in, in normal crypto. So I don't think we'd necessarily be moving away from that. Um, there are some interesting privacy concerns around proof-of-stake networks that um, uh, are going to need. We, we, ha- we have a transition plan and so on. It's not something I'm... Um, ready to talk about right now, but we are we are definitely looking at some of the issues that come into place when you have um, proof of stake systems versus proof of work systems.
0: I don't want to go too down down the uh, too far down the rabbit hole of.
1: We're of, pretty deep down the rabbit hole already, I think. So.
0: Well, uh, of, of like token economics, or, or yeah. I was I was going to preface my my last question with this, um, not to go too down uh, far down the the investment rabbit hole for for OXT because you know the, the ultimate goal is to use this as um, a liquid token to actually facilitate VPN usage. But um, if the end resource that OXT is, is really representing in, in some way, shape, or form is, is bandwidth and, and kind of available network bandwidth, uh, why the fixed supply? Why is this not more of a dynamic issuance like you'd see with a, a stable coin or um, some other monetary asset that that you can tie pretty closely to an existing digital resource?
1: Um, and that's an interesting question. I think this starts to get into theories of economics. Um, and uh, I guess we'll, we'll be publishing some more information on this soon, but it was definitely definitely mapped to our theory as to uh, issues around deflationary or inflationary currencies. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess I wouldn't see this as uh, just a representation of bandwidth, necessarily. Um, it's more mm-hmm. a representation of the provision of a service um, in a network, um, whether that is, in, as it is currently, bandwidth, but in the future could be bandwidth of compute or or other kinds of resources in a system. Um, it could be content, for example, access to content. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we think it's the right kind of design, but uh, I, I, try, I try to stay out of the the <laughs>
0: The
1: yeah sure, nuance. Uh,
0: yeah well, and, and I don't want to get you into trouble either because <laughs> uh, I, I recognize that it's sensitive, uh, particularly you know being in the us uh, and talking about the the fact that there there are going to be price variances to um to to some of these currencies um, so you know the, uh, let, let's talk about some of those other applications. you kind of hinted at some of the things that that you could build after this component is shipped. Uh, at Orchid Labs, is there anything else even on the roadmap right now or or is it all theoretical
1: um, so we 're a little different from other uh, companies and we've been we 've been sort of criticized a little bit about this in the past um, but're um, we're, we 're a bit more like an old school sort of Silicon Valley startup in the way we um, the way we release information um, we 're very transparent in the sense that it 's all open source and Uh, you know, you can find us easily and we're at conferences, you know, we're not secretive in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But exactly which rabbit we're about to pull out of the bag next is something that we kind of keep pretty close to our our chest. Um, Not not to the extent like Apple does, where they actually build literal silos within the companies, but uh, um, we do have a few things we can talk about, which is that um, we're obviously very excited to, anyone who's listening, we're very excited to integrate Um, ORCID with existing applications, um, whether they are crypto applications, obviously Ethereum, ERC-20 stuff compatible is much easier, but other networks um, or or even things that are not necessarily crypto. So thinking about ORCID as something that could be used within an application to provide these uh, bandwidth services. Um, That's one area that we're looking at uh, very closely and we've got some new things coming soon. And, yeah, and then uh, if you can kind of just start thinking about the suite of privacy tools so for example one thing we have right now is on the phone uh, there's also a traffic analyzer so it shows you mm-hmm. which site which which uh, IP addresses your phone is is connecting to all the time which we just don't really know you open up an application you just don't really know what it's doing it's all happening in the background um, so with Orchid you can actually see a traffic analyzer you can see what what's happening so an obvious extension about that is, to consider putting in lists where you say, well, these are malware IPs. We really shouldn't go to these. Or or actually, these are tracking IPs that I don't want to um, access. So maybe I should restrict those. Now, if you do that, that might affect the functionality of your phone. It might affect the applications that are running. Um, But at least you're starting to get some kind of visibility and control into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a general theme of what we're trying to do is not only build these kind of tools, but also educate people about our tool, what it does and what it doesn't do, and educate people about what's going on. Because we have a lot of privacy theater happening right now. There's companies that are using privacy as a a banner to to build a business model that's really not that private, or it's just another business model the same. Um, Or they're saying things are private and they're really not. Or like many VPN companies, they're telling that if you use the VPN, then you won't get hacked whilst VPN usage doesn't really have anything to do with whether you get hacked or not, unless you're on an open Wi-Fi, in which case, sure, that, that might be a consideration.
0: We got a, a few minutes left here. Why don't we talk about the decision to ultimately pursue something that looked a lot like a direct listing with Coinbase, um, and what led to that decision, how it was ultimately executed, and why that was the appropriate path for, the OXT token, given some of the goals that you have um, to onboard actual users uh, to the VPN network versus create an, an army of speculators or have any type of you know price or volume support from uh, from a listing venue um, that was going to support the asset. Just can whatever you can t- say that's not um, encumbered by confidentiality agreements. I, I of think getting yeah. Load- color on that process would be very valuable as people think about whether that could be another trend that, that token
1: issuers follow in the, in the next year. Well, I'd love to tell you that it was all part of some grand strategy that we had three years ago. Um, <laughs> but, but as is with many things uh, and, and even things in my life where you look back and you say, wow, that was an interesting career path, but I'm like, yeah, it was very accidental." Um, with, uh, with with some a lot of luck, the the real answer is is that um, if you kind of look at why we're doing what we're doing and what we're trying to do, um, mm-hmm. we're one of the well, notwithstanding DeFi and some some strong attempts at building uh, user facing applications, um, we're one of the the new things, the few things that are that actually have applications as um, the primary goal of what we're trying to build and that's backed by uh, this crypto-powered network. Um, so you start thinking about a couple of things. You wanna first of all have it so that OXT can be acquired by uh, as many people as possible in as many locations. Now Coinbase in the US and only USD, well actually we, we recently have another exchange list as a, our first crypto pair. Um, but for a while it's just been USD for the, last, for the first month or so. So that doesn't seem to really satisfy that goal. Um, but if you look at it another way, having uh, a company like Coinbase, which has um, certainly some of the most stringent onboarding requirements and um, definitely uh, a very focused and stringent kind of approach to what, what's a good project, what's not what's not a good project, um, is is somewhat of a it's a good approach because then other exchanges around the world maybe will follow and, and also consider uh, supporting us. Um, so that does somewhat fall into this idea of, of how do you, how do you get lots of people to have access to it? But the interesting question you have around the speculation. Um, it's something that uh, Olaf and I talked about early on and I, I said the same thing as you did, is, but if instead it, if we call it volume. Um, so having healthy volume in a lot of places um, is actually very good for these companies that have these crypto-powered networks. Because if you think about if you are a VPN provider and in our network, you're spending dollars or, or some other currency to run your bandwidth and so on. And it's real money. You've got people and you're paying them. Um, so when you're taking in OXT in return for providing these services, you need somewhere that you can go and, and get a fair and stable price for an oxt and you also need to have it somewhat predictable in the sense of mm-hmm. yes it may go up and down just like all the other things do in this world but uh you really want something predictable so that you know what the spot price is at any point in time so you know what to invest and you know what to spend uh so finding a, a venue that had um that kind of combination of uh initial access to users but also a strong brand and, um, over time, uh, access to good liquidity and stable markets was was very uh, important in how we thought about um, the sort of initial support partners there. Um, I think that the the question around sort of direct listing versus IEO, um, it's quite a nuanced answer there, but uh, I'll just give you kind of a general answer, which is that um, having been in the space for, I guess, like seven years now, mm-hmm. um I'm always very cautious of the next hot, the next hot thing when it comes to um, maybe not technology but when it comes to markets and what everyone thinks is the cool way to do something, uh, we're much more skeptical and um, certainly uh, when we'd had conversations with people that um, wanted to do something which we just considered was just not on our mission. Um, we were happy to to just move on Um, in spite of sometimes a lot of pressure to go do something quickly and uh yeah i I think that we will be continuing to see and i hope we'll continue to see more high quality uh projects um look for um a kind of a longer play and a longer play approach to how to get to market versus trying to get the quick win and then suffering later and everyone suffers really when they do that
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, to a certain extent, it depends on what your goals are, right? If, if, if you have a a monetary asset or you have, uh, some, some asset that, that does look more like uh, an explicit, you know, investments, um, asset or or quasi security, then it probably makes sense to do something that looks a little bit more like an I E O where you're trying to rally support from other public investors as, as you make this transition. But, um, for uh for for something like oxt, particularly as you're kind of in the earliest innings of onboarding partners and and developing some of these uh, application um, integrations uh, you, you probably don't want the price to gyrate too wildly because it yeah. runs counter to your your end goals, especially given it's it's a very small percentage of the
1: tokens that are, are currently floating yeah, and also I think just thinking about it, in in most cases um you may have developers who are also uh holders of something in a crypto space Mm -hmm. but it's unusual to have users who might also be developers who might also be holders so the user part of it is new um -hmm. and so we'd much rather um be doing something like we are with coinbase earn where um you can get educated on orchid and then get access to the token and use it um and then hopefully download the application, and then I get excited, and then tell your friends, and so on. We'd much rather be incentivizing that behavior and spending essentially OXT on marketing, where the marketing is not marketing of our trading, it's marketing of our usage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely much more interesting to us than um, just increasing the number of people who are trading it in the short term. Um, because ultimately, if we are successful in the use of it, then all the other things will, will flow from that.
0: SEVEN, uh, thank you so much for joining. I, I hope everybody enjoyed this conversation. We're going to finish with one last lightning round question, which is because okay. of your introduction. Uh, why the name change? Where, where, where does SEVEN come from? And, uh, and why is that the new
1: moniker? <laughs> um, well, it all started as a bit of a joke, um, like many all the best things. Uh, there were the, the core team included um, two of us called Steve and I'd gone by Steve for a long time, uh, originally Steven with a V on um, PH. And um, it just got to the point where having, having two people jump when someone said the name was, was starting to at least annoy me. Um, and so I turned to uh, Brian Fox, who is another co-founders who wrote Bash and he came up with the name Bash as the shell that's used. And i was like i can just someone pick another name for me and hopefully a variant of the letters <laughs> that i have already and he's like well like what and i was like i don't know like sven i said like, but that's weird because i have a friend called sven and he's like well i want to get rid of two letters you are just gonna be seven so i was like okay that's that's fun um and in a in a moment of uh of, of of haste i just went on and changed my social media connections and set up an email address for seven and and then it kind of just built from there. And then I, I kind of liked it, so I kind of went with it. And, um, and that's basically how it happened. It's a great nickname.
0: Uh, and uh, hopefully that eliminates any confusion for people that knew you from the previous <laughs> lives and, and, and now see uh, that you're not just going about this as the artist formerly known as Stephen Waterhouse, but there's, there's <laughs> rhyme and reason to it. Um, uh, Stephen, where uh, or seven? Excuse me. Where where can people uh, find you? Find more about the project and get involved.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, the website is ORCID, which is o r c h i d dot I'm seven, like actually the number seven at ORCID.com. Um, and we have all the kind of usual social stuff uh, on there. We're going to be at a lot of the uh, uh, conferences coming up soon. We'll be at East Denver in a few days, and then. ETH London, ETH Paris, um, and uh, we, if you subscribe to our newsletter, you find out exactly where we are. Um, we'd love to hear from you, um, and we're excited to, to keep building this thing and uh, further on our mission. Thanks, Ryan.
0: We're, we're excited to see how it develops, and uh, yeah. appreciate you coming on. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, be good. Stay safe. Peace. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern Time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.